Welcome to the Friday subscribers-only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights, and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Sean Spear, great to be in conversation with you. We've got our usual wingman, Stuart Thompson, editor-in-chief of the Hub, out getting his eyes lasered, Sean, this morning. So that steely-eyed gaze of Stuart Thompson is going to be even more acute come Monday. You ready for that? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think he uh, he needed it after watching uh, the election results come in from Ontario last night. Well, that's exactly where I want to start with you. Um, some listeners of the podcast may know that uh, you chair uh, an initiative at the Monk School of Global Affairs called Ontario 360 that spent the last three and a half years kind of looking for evidence-based policy solutions to the big uh, economic challenges facing the province. Wondering how you're feeling this morning, Sean. I think you can sense a little bit of the, uh, yeah, the Scheidenfrode in my voice. Uh, you know, we just had an election, a complete absence of any discussion of any policy, let alone productivity, the economy, the future of growth in a economically challenged jurisdiction of Ontario. And all the parties were equal offenders, but one came out with a majority. What's, what's the takeaway, Sean, from this election? It's striking, isn't it? Um, it? It's pretty rare for a majority government to enter an election and come out with an expanded majority, but that's what the Ford government has done. Um, listeners may know that uh, before yesterday, um, the party had 67 parliamentary seats. Um, after last night's results, it's now up to 83 of 124. It's um, a huge affirmation. Um, and the question, of course, is what's it an affirmation of? Uh, you know, what part of the past four years, um, what aspects of the Ford agenda uh, is uh, is Ontarians endorsing, or or as you say, what part of its the proposition it put forward in this uh, twenty nine day election campaign is the is the electorate endorsing? I think that's a big question. You know, does the Ford government have a mandate um, uh, after this result? A mandate for what? And I, I, it's not clear to me, uh, Rudyard, given the the way that this election campaign played out, um, that it necessarily has a mandate for, for much of anything, except um, a kind of continuation of what we've seen for the past four years, which is, you know, occasional nods to good public policy. But generally speaking, um, you know, this is not a government that has had a clear, coherent plan um, for its first four years in office. Uh, good insight, Sean. Let me let me go even more meta, and I'm not talking about the social media company. Um, you you uh, work for a guy called Stephen Harper, who I'm starting to get more and more nostalgic about. Um, you know, there was a time not so long ago in Canadian politics where people campaigned to govern, 
And the idea was that you brought forward um, ideas that would shape uh, economic, social, and other policy that would set out um, a substantiation of your ideology, your core principles. Um, I, I, I look at this election and, and then our most recent federal election, and I just, I see every party of every stripe campaigning for power, campaigning uh, to, in a sense, seize the machinery of government to hold and maintain power. I, I see nothing in this most recent provincial election that points to any, on part of any of these parties. So I'm not singling anyone out here. I'm just saying they're all, to me, equal offenders in, in having engaged in this ridiculous, in a sense, bidding war for uh, for Ontario voters, uh, you know, competing pledges on highways, housing, uh, nurses, doctors, you know, I, I don't know, Sean, I, I, I kind of, I worry is something, it's that something's happening to our political culture here, both on the part of voters and on the part of political parties and political leaders. There's a, a kind of raw transactionalism. I don't know if that's a word, but it's, it's what I would characterize our this moment in Canadian politics. It's like, what are you gonna give me? How much? I want more, give me more. And, and no sense of the structure, the consequences, the trade-offs of this highly reactive, um, to me, really uh, disappointing uh, set of elections, back-to-back, -back, federal and now provincial. What's your take? Well, let me... Um, be the the glasses half full voice on that particular question because I, I think it's a it's a major question you know there's no doubt that that the campaign was a, an inherently transactional campaign where you had the different parties competing with their own equivalent buck of something um, policy pronouncements um, but the reason why I say I, I'm I'm my perspective on this particular question is glasses half full is that voter turnout was only forty three percent. Uh, that is to say, a large swath of the Ontario public, in effect, rejected um, all of the parties and what was on offer. And it, it seems to me it's that share of non-voters who, who are implicitly saying they want something else. They want something different. They, and it, you know, it seems to me, um, you know, had we ran a, a kind of parallel campaign where one of the parties would have put forward that big picture proposition that you're talking about, not a mere transactionalism, um, but a, a vision for the province, not just for the next four years, but over the next couple of decades, rooted in um, growth and productivity and raising living standards uh, in the province of Ontario by enacting some of the big kind of structural changes we need to make from regulation to modernizing healthcare to um, setting higher ambitions for, for education. You know, I, I can't help but think had we ran that parallel campaign out against what we saw, um, that voter turnout would have been higher. Um, and so I guess I hold out hope that that um, share Sean, of the population who rejected this election. Fair, um, yeah, fair enough. But, but would, that, something else. would that parallel campaign have, have had any chance? Uh, a campaign based on, you know, as you say, some, some structural reforms that we know are urgently needed uh, in terms of economic policy, tax policy, health care. Our, our whole system of social supports. I would argue, Sean, that there's a toxic combination here 
of apathy that explains why almost nearly 60% of voters stayed away from the polls. And then those that did show up basically said, well, what did you do for me lately? Where's my buck a ride, buck a beer, buck a something? I don't know, Sean. I, 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 if this had just been a one-off, I think I would give you that analysis. But to me, this is eerily familiar to the last federal election, where once again, you had all, all three parties, all three major parties, campaigning as if there, were, there was no fiscal constraints. Um, let's remember, Ontario is the single largest subnational debtor in the world, with over 70,000 dollars owed per every man, woman, and child in the province. This is a jurisdiction you know better than most, Sean, that has per capita GDP equivalent to West Virginia and falling fast vis-a-vis -vis its peer jurisdictions in the United States. This is a province, Sean, that your excellent interview this week on Hub Dialogues with the outgoing president of the Ontario Medical Association has over 20 million plus in, in the shape of a backlog of surgical diagnostic and other uh, needed medical interventions for people living in Ontario, which are going unmet, which will cause uh, years of suffering, mortality, and death. I mean, Sean, these are this province is like, is not in a good place. And yet we just had an election about nothing. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure how to respond to that. I, I mean, I think I, I don't disagree, except to say, um, you, you know, it, it, I, I, just, I just have this underlying sense um, that the, the public um, is open to and would be responsive to a more audacious uh, vision and agenda than we've saw over the past 29 days. Um, and, and it's why I say the part, sometimes I, I wish we could run these parallel campaigns or yeah. kind of test out the counterfactual. Um, let me shift the subject slightly though. We spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about um, conservative politics and some of the inherent challenges in conservative politics. Um, you know, but the, elephant in the room from last night's result is we've seen two party leaders resign. Um, the, the, the liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca, and the NDP leader, Andrea Horvath. And, you know, it seems to me, Rudyard, one of the major takeaways from last night's result is that progressive politics, center-left politics, has some difficult questions on its hands that it needs to confront about, um, you know, it's economic agenda, it's kind of increasing form of identity politics and the extent to which uh, this mix is turning people off. You know, it's worth mentioning that uh, last night, uh, the progressive conservatives picked up Timmins, Thunder Bay, Windsor. These are parts of the province where progressive conservatives have, uh, have not competed for a long time. And that's against the backdrop in which the party received endorsements from eight trade unions unions that for a series of elections had um, been at the center of a kind of anti-conservative third party campaign. Um, you know, and there's an argument that some of these um, voters and organizations have come to the progressive conservatives because of affirmative things that the government has done. And I think that the labor minister, Monty McNaughton, deserves a lot of credit for that. 
Um, but that takes the liberals, New Democrats, a, a bit um, off the hook. Uh, you know, it seems to me it, what we saw last night ought to be a kind of signal to center left and progressive parties across the country that if you move too far left, if you vacate uh, the center of the political spectrum on economics and on culture and identity, um, you're putting yourself at a serious electoral risk. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, you, you had a good piece on this earlier in, in the week in the Hub. And look, I think there are some lessons here that progressives can draw, but I wouldn't, I don't know, I wouldn't uh, necessarily single out this election for too much introspection, because let's face it, the you know, the progressive conservatives really put the P in PC this election. I mean, they tried to, in a sense, outcompete the liberals and NDPs on almost every single policy announcement, whether it be building new homes, new nurses and doctors, uh, transit spending. And, and the result of it is that the Ford, the Doug Ford budget of late April, that, you know, presumably would be the template for the new government he's going to form, you know, projects spending of almost $200 billion. That's, that's $20 billion more than the final budget of Kathleen Wynne's liberal government in 2018, even adjusted for inflation, Sean, and this is two and a half years after the pandemic, so we cannot keep using that excuse for this kind of insane profligacy. So I, I, I just wonder whether it's, it's somehow, it's much crass, crasser than a battle of ideology and ideas. It's simply a battle of who's willing to pay more to buy more votes and completely disregard any sense of fiscal probity or an understanding of the economic trade-offs of massive deficit spending in, in the most indebted subnational government in the world. Yeah, I think, I think there's something to that. Um, what I would say though, is I, I do think, well, the Ford government has self-evidently moved to the left on economics and fiscal policy. I, I, I think on the issue of culture broadly defined, um, um, you know, Doug Ford personally conveys a kind of a rejection of the, the tilt that we're seeing um, in progressive politics, um, you know, the emphasis on issues like race and, and gender and sexuality and these sorts of things. Um, and, you know, it seems to me um, that it, there is a lesson there um, that progressives probably ought to, to, to take away um, that, uh, uh, you, you know, had um, the liberals and the Democrats emphasize their economic and, and social policies more and less some of these cultural and identity issues, um, you know, they, they, they may have been able to um, uh, perform better. Uh, let me just raise one other issue, uh, Rudyard, which is the, the pandemic itself. Um, you know, there's been a lot of criticism on both the left and the right of the Ford government's handling of the pandemic. Um, you know, what, what, how do you think pandemic management or pandemic performance uh, was reflected, if at all, in last night's results? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's the big surprise. You know, um, all governments made made mistakes. Um, this government in Ontario obviously made some doozies, including shutting down kids' playgrounds <laughs> if they were a, a big source of virus transmission. I mean, that's I shouldn't joke about that, but it it was just one of a series of kind of knee jerk reactions, including multiple school closures, which really had no 
medical epidemiological basis. You, some of that you could say is hindsight, but you know, as we've discussed on previous episodes, you know, Jason Kenney, arguably one of the most policy inclined, kind of thoughtful, forward-looking politicians willing to consider these big structural challenges facing the economy and growth and productivity, he makes those same mistakes and he loses his premiership. Doug Ford arguably makes as many or very similar ones, and he's awarded with a giant majority. I don't know. I have a hard time squaring that. I I, I just think... and we're going to talk about in the second half about rising rates. I, I think we are, we're at a hinge moment, Sean. We are, we're kind of, um, we're, we're waiting. Um, and a, a somewhat violent transition to our economy and a lot of our assumptions is about to incur, incur as central banks aggressively hike interest rates. But before that happens, all of us are kind of anesthetized. Uh, We're anesthetized by our home property values going up 50% in 24 months, as if that's a particularly healthy economic phenomenon. We're anesthetized by a decade or more of debt and deficit spending, both at government and at personal levels. Uh, You know, reports that HELOC debt, people withdrawing uh, equity out of their home lines of credit has gone up over 30% during the pandemic to almost three quarters of a trillion dollars. Um, I, I don't know. I hate to be so pessimistic, Sean, but I, I, I think we're, we're kind of a, a toy country, a fantasy kingdom uh, built on, on mountains of profligacy and debt. And there's a harsh, hard reality that I think is going to be a wake-up call for all of us. It's coming fast and it's coming in the form of, of rising rate hikes. We'll take up that question, um, as you say, um, in a minute. But Maybe there's a transition here, Rudyard, from a discussion of last night's result um, and uh, the the National Conservative Party's leadership race, which um, uh, today uh, represents the membership cutoff um, for uh, uh, for, uh, to lock in, in effect, who will be able to vote and participate um, in the leadership vote in, in September. You know, one is already reading um, articles and commentary about how last night's result uh, represents a uh, a playbook uh, with a set of insights uh, for the Conservative Party of Canada. You know, do do you think that those takes are overwrought, um, or is there something in in Ontario's result that uh, that the uh, leadership campaigns of Polyev and Shrey and Brown and others? ought to be accounting for? Well, I, you know, if Pierre Polyev's private member's bill introduced today is any indication, a bill uh, which he has um, uh, stated his desires, intention to make law, the removal not only of all vaccine mandates now, but any vaccine mandates at any point in the future, presumably in response to any pathogen or pandemic which might occur, I would say the big answer is no, um, that, you know, national conservative politics is, uh, you know, drinking the, uh, uh, the high alcohol content of, uh, of the populist moment, which, uh, grips a lot of the membership of the party and that uh, Ontario kind of, again, I, I, I just think is a, is 
in many ways, it's a province of convenience. And now we have a kind of politics of convenience. Um, and I'm not sure it's too particularly relevant to the national scene or anything other than just the the complacency, again, of a, a dead-addled jurisdiction before the harsh reality of, of higher interest rates uh, hammer home. One thing that I've been thinking about since last night is the Venn diagram between um, provincial conservative voters and activists and um, federal conservative voters and activists. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap, but it's not a perfect overlap. You know, I just just before we uh, we we started speaking this morning, I, I checked one thing, Rudyard. Um, in this most recent provincial election, the Pan Campaign Life Coalition, which is a, a an advocacy group focused on pro-life issues, and it, it endorses candidates based on their voting record and their um, their values. In this election, Campaign Life Coalition endorsed seven progressive conservative candidates across the province. In the last federal election, it endorsed 17 conservative party um, incumbents or candidates ac across the province. And so you know, it's a fascinating thing to think about the kind of culture and ethos of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario and uh, the culture and ethos of the Conservative Party of Canada, even within the province of Ontario. And, and I, I think there is a, an important, subtle but important difference that probably makes last, imposes some limits on uh, interpreting last night's results and applying them um, to the to the national party, but and this is important, but that Doug Ford has done now in successive elections something that the Conservative Party of Canada has struggled to do, really with the exception of 2011, which is to pick up seats, um, key seats in um, in the GTA. And in in that regard, you know, it seems to me there there probably is a case. Uh, for um, the different leadership campaigns to be uh, kind of studying and understanding part of uh, Doug Ford's appeal um, in those parts of the province, in addition to um, the gains that he's made with uh, working class voters, like we talked about earlier in places like Timmins and, and Thunder Bay and so on. Well, it's a debate for another day, but you know, if you're spending $20 billion more than Kathleen Wynne at her high watermark, it doesn't really surprise me that you're, you're popular with voters. Hey, because you're spending money on everything and anything. You're refunding people's um, vehicle permits to the tune of multiple billions of dollars of tax expenditure. I mean, Sean, it's just, it's such an immature politics, both on the part of our political leaders, but also frankly, on the part of voters. We're all paying for this, okay? You have a, you have a kid now, I've got a couple. Um, like it's just, it's just this incredible fantasy that we're living on that we can have all of this great healthcare, great highways and roads, um, first class uh, education system, and yet per capita GDP equivalent to West Virginia, abysmal productivity growth, and an economy you know mired in red tape regulation and high energy costs. Like it, I don't know, I don't know, Sean. Uh, I spend a lot of my time trying to, trying to think fairly and honestly about um, both opportunity and not simply challenges. But I, I really, uh, there's something about last night's result that just uh, depresses me about the state of our body politics. But look, enough of my 
lament. Let's come back after this after this break with uh, a little bit of talk about how to interpret this second um, 50 basis point hike by the Bank of Canada. And uh, let's dip it a little bit into Bill Morneau's um, uh, pretty trenchant, you know, critique again uh, at the federal level of a, the lack of a, a growth agenda, even a conversation about how do we afford all this if the economy is not becoming more productive if we're not becoming wealthier back right after this break rudyard griffiths here the executive director of the hub thank you for listening to this our friday subscriber only podcast if you're enjoying this podcast and what the hub is all about providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button donate. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Welcome back, Hub listeners, to our regular Friday roundtable. We're one man down this week. Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, is away, but we are in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and me, your executive director. Sean, I want to spend a little time in the back half of the show just talking about this, uh, again, second uh, extraordinary rate hike by the Bank of Canada, another 50 basis points. Um, and interestingly, uh, a press conference given later by the Deputy, uh, Deputy Governor, um, really, uh, I think for the first time, acknowledging just how challenging this fight against inflation could be and the necessity to take rates uh, real rates into positive territory. So maybe you could just explain to our listeners why maybe the bank this time is really actually kind of serious and we should be prepared for, uh, yeah, some, some not insignificant economic fallout. I thought it was a pretty extraordinary set of comments from Paul Beaudry, the, the deputy bank of, uh, bank of Canada governor. He amongst other things, in effect, acknowledged um, mistakes on the part of the bank in the clearest um, in the clearest form that we've heard really to date. Um, you know, it seems to me that there are probably two factors behind uh, this admission. One is the ongoing pressure from Pierre Polyev and others um, kind of calling on the bank for greater accountability. And two, listeners probably know that U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in effect, said something similar this week um, in, a, in a congressional testimony. So, um, you know, I guess the first and most, in some ways, most important um, uh, observations out of out of this press conference is, is just this acknowledgement that the bank has a misread inflation for you know the past several months. Um, the, the second uh, big takeaway, it seems to me, Rudyard, is uh, Beaudry said that he thinks inflation actually is going to continue to rise in the short term, um, and. Um, and that's going to necessitate uh, ongoing rate hikes. You know, before I turn it over to you, I think you know the piece of news this morning that struck me is e- Elon Musk uh, saying that he need, he thinks that Tesla needs to cut its workforce by ten percent because we're about to go into 
um, some uh, pretty turbulent economic conditions. And, you know, I, I think the, the kind of subtext of Beaudry's press conference this week was basically that, um, that the likelihood of a recession, um, you know, increasingly looks um, um, quite possible uh, because uh, we're the, the bank in Canada and elsewhere uh, are now kind of scrambling um, to get uh, in, inflation under check. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the word to introduce here really is stagflation. I think that is the worry that we have, in a sense, um, these external variables that have nothing to do with the Bank of Canada and the Bank of Canada have no impact on, which is, you know, high energy prices brought about not only by the war, but by, you know, a decade or more of uh, ESG um, type mandates and government regulation, which really uh, has curtailed, especially in North America, um, uh, energy energy output, hydrocarbon output. Um, that's not going away anytime soon. Then you've got China and COVID disruption of supply chains. Uh, again, you know, um, maybe things loosen up after Xi is you know coronated as uh, as the dear leader this fall for a, a lifetime of uh, service to the people of China. Um, but you can keep going through the list, you know, agriculture, food, fertilizer prices uh, soaring. Um, the Ukraine war enters its hundredth day today. Um, every indication that, you know, Russia and much of its wheat and grain and fertilizer is going to remain off uh, big portions of uh, the global market, driving pressures up. So what concerns me, Sean, is this idea of cost push inflation that you can understandably have higher long-term 1970s style kind of commodity shock that does what it does, which is workers show up at the gas pump or the grocery store and say, hey, wait a second, I need a wage hike here. You know, I need more compensation to, to deal with these higher prices. And then you're into a wage price spiral. So what, what I think I'm hearing from the Bank of Canada is a sense that this is stickier. Mm. Uh, maybe then we had hoped that we had hoped possibly that very high debt levels would be would create a lot of sensitivity to higher rates and people would would therefore react and that that would bring aggregate demand down. But as I see it, it this is this is a really different and difficult problem. It's because you, you want to match aggregate demand and supply. That's how you would stabilize inflation and bring it down. But the fact is that supply is curtailed and it's curtailed by forces, again, outside of the bank's control. So to bring demand in, in, into balance with supply, you've really got to hammer demand down. And to me, that sounds like a recession, possibly a bad one. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, um, you know, it's just worth observing um, and it relates to our earlier conversation. We have in Ontario and several other uh, jurisdictions across the country, collective agreements with major bargaining units coming up in the next um, several months. You know, I think, for instance, of healthcare workers in the province of Ontario um, who are going to be demanding significant wage increases, in part as recognition of the, the work that they did in the in the pandemic, but also to reflect uh, these inflationary pressures across the country. And you know, there's reason based on our earlier conversation to be. Uh, a bit skeptical that governments are going to have the stomach to hold the line on those on on those negotiations. And as you say, um, there is something of a 
of a kind of laugher curve when it comes to wage increases and the way in which they then inform um, uh, this kind of an inflationary spiral. So, uh, you know, I, I said I was glass half full earlier about last night's election results. On these issues, I concede um, that there is increasing signs um, that glass is half full perspective on the economy is probably um, um, going to be proven wrong in, in the coming weeks and months. Well, hey, I want to bring in our um, voice from the West. He's uh, writing to us uh, out of Edmonton. He's one of our senior editors at the Hub, uh, Luke Smith. Uh, Luke, always good uh, to get your view of how kind of Western Canadians are thinking about some of these issues. What's the economic mood out there? Because I kind of wonder with the bounce back in energy prices, uh, seemingly a reasonably strong Calgary housing market for the first time in a while, you've probably also got farmers thinking, wow, there's potential here for a huge bumper crop. You know, are Sean and I just kind of channeling a central Canadian housing anxious, you know, interest rate anxious sentiment? Or is the economic mood out West also one of concern? Yeah, so I'll give my uh, my own perspective, which might uh, be tailored by the fact that I just was in COVID quarantine for two weeks and uh, came out and went grocery shopping for the first time and was quite, <laughs> got the sticker shock of uh, quite an increase in the bill since the last time I had been even. So even just in, in that kind of quick two week period, I, I, I noticed quite the increase. So no, I don't think it's just an isolated um, experience for the central Canadians. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's quite, quite, quite drastic out here as well. And I, I, I think maybe not quite as, um, quite as noticeable maybe as, uh, as the housing markets, for instance, but um, people, are, people are starting to feel it, that's for sure. Hey, thanks for playing along. Luke Smith, our um, senior content editor who uh, creates all that great stuff. You see the Hub email every morning in your inbox per diem. Uh, Luke is doing the hard work on Edmonton time the night before to get that ready for you. And Luke, we really appreciate all your efforts and contributions to the hub. Sean, I, I want to wrap up today's episode by talking about, because it's related to the interest rate hikes, and I think it's also in part related to our earlier discussion about the Ontario election, about B Bill Morneau's um, speech at the C.D. Howe Institute, really coming out saying that the federal liberal government, of which he was arguably you know, the most uh, senior cabinet minister, his finance minister, um, does not give a flying something about uh you know the longer term growth agenda is more interested in kind of divvying up you know the spoils of taxation it, it seemed as especially especially harsh uh sean um where is this coming from and you know how seriously should we take this is this a case of spoiled grapes here i mean morneau was hey it happens in politics he was pushed under the bus uh, somewhat unceremoniously dumped by the PM. He was promised the OECD, OECD uh, job, and understandably, there were bureaucrats tasked to global affairs to work on that for him. But hey, that went nowhere too. Um, no small part due to the Wee scandal. But uh, what's what's your take? Should, should should we give some weight to Bill Morneau's words? Yeah, I, I think you should. I think we should. You know, there, I've seen some 
comments area that have it's a bit hypocritical and as you say maybe it, it's informed by kind of personal gripes or whatever but as you know Rudyard the the kind of partisan pressure to fall into line is pretty overwhelming and, and that's why we see very few cases where former partisans are prepared to challenge uh, governments of their own stripe I, I must admit I, I felt this pressure as someone who was involved at, at one time in partisan politics and now observes policy and politics from the outside, it, 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 it's difficult because these are people you know and, and social circles in which you um, in, in which you travel. So I, I actually think it, there's something kind of courageous um, in Mr. Morno's comments that he was willing um, to um, both, I think, raise critiques about the opposition parties. He was he was tough on the conservatives for Sean, sure. He is married to McCain, and he's worth <laughs> tens of millions of dollars on his own. So let's let's put courage in a little bit of a, <laughs> a little bit of context here. It's not the kind of courage that you have, my friend. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't in a foxhole, but I but I you know, there's no doubt um, that he blew up some bridges um, in his past partisan relationships. And well, that's that's not nothing. And I think, you know, he raised a lot of points that many of us have, um, have implicitly or explicitly assumed or reflected on the outside. But here was someone on the inside saying, this is a government that's too focused on redistribution, not focused enough on growth. Uh, it's a government that, um, you know, can be a bit frivolous at times and, and kind of incoherent and too focused on, um, you know, kind of an Instagram politics. And, you know, the, the, the critique um, was powerful precisely because it reflects, I think, something that most people implicitly think. And, um, you know, as I say, I think it, I, I think it's, it's, it's healthy for someone like him to, to come out and, and, and say these things. And, and, you know, hopefully it, it um, causes liberals nationally, but also provincially, where we're, you know, we're going to have a, a leadership race sooner than later to you know, start to go through that process of introspection that I mentioned earlier. What does it mean to be a, a liberal um, in the 21st century? Is the party going to continue to move um, to the left in an effort to kind of, you know, in effect, balkanize the new Democrats? Or is it going to return to the kind of center of Canadian politics where it, it, it dominated for so long um, in, the, in the 20th century? Yeah, my my takeaway would just be the additional piece of his criticism, which was multi-partisan, in effect, kind of what I was saying in the previous block that, you know, it's all politics, it's all campaign all the time. Um, no one's really interested in governing because governing, hey, guess what? It involves, you know, often, you know, some policy choices that are not in your political interest. And you know, I've, I've been a bit, just frankly, surprised by the federal liberal government over the last few weeks. I mean, you have a worsening economic backdrop. You have a the most significant geopolitical risk in the form of the Russia-Ukraine war in a generation. And you know, what are we what are we spending our legislative time and energy on? Um, you know, handgun bans, which look, uh, I think, somewhat obscenely timed to the horrific you know tragedies in buffalo and texas and then you know uh deep dives into you know state in uh, state uh regulation of uh video streaming services you know if a thousand one problems facing canada right now i would put those at about a thousand and two and a thousand and three um 
Like, let's get back to governing. Who's willing to govern, Sean? Um, it just, again, it seems like our political culture has instilled in our parties and so-called leaders the sense that there is no up political upside in governing anymore. Why govern? I mean, it's it's bread and circuses. It's a kind of it's like a Nero-like moment of of the of what's left of the Roman Republic. Yeah, you have and you have the case of the Kenny government that really was governing, right? Yeah. Um, um, and uh, and and was sacked before the end of its term. I, you know, I come back to the point I made earlier. I, I don't want to sound like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but I, I do think that there is a, movie. <laughs> that there is a critical mass of Canadians that um, are would be responsive to a, a kind of more aspirational politics. You know, you remember our founding essay at the Hub, Roger, where we talk about the fact that. Um, a significant share of the Canadian public doesn't think that their children are going to have better lives than they do. And I, I think that's partly a, a function of our politics failing to provide a kind of vision for the future, a, a, a vision that looks different and better. And, you know, I, I think the politician that has the audacity to put that different and better future forward uh, will be rewarded for it. You know, I, I, that's my kind of political ethos and I think in some ways it's um, the ethos um, of the hub um, which means um, as hard as it is some days you know I, mm -hmm. I try to keep the glass as half full as possible <laughs> even though these days I seem to be kind of drinking it down um, with something stronger and stronger. You're, you're joining me in the, the slough of despond that is the uh... The Griffiths mindset. Now, look, hopefully it is darkest before the dawn and that there are other leaders out there. Um, we talked about Mark Carney last week. Um, who knows? Maybe there is somebody, if there's a significant economic turndown, you know, um, serious leaders for serious times. Uh, you know, I think that's what this country really needs. Um, I think it needs someone to step forward who's willing to take these on these bigger challenges that we face and kind of speak honestly with the public about the realities of the trade-off, uh, everything that we want. And, and regardless of political stripe, you know, conservatives want generous social programs too. We want to get rid of poverty. We want to lift people up into a culture uh, and an economy of opportunity. But to do that, to have the resources, you have to have growth. You have to have productivity gains. You have to not be what, Morneau pointed out, and we've pointed out the hub and others have too, the OECD ranking Canada dead last in terms of, of, uh, of GDP uh, growth, uh, again, on a per capita basis, which is arguably the measurement that kind of matters the most over the, the next number of decades. I don't know. I, I, I don't like Canada being last. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to be part of a country that's last. I mean, come on. Where's our kind of fighting instincts? Where's our sense of national pride? Like, let's be first. Or you not even settle for, I don't know, Sean, even settle for like the middle. I'd even go for the mushy middle. But now we're settling for last? When, when was that ever in the Canadian DNA? Well, you know, our, our, uh, tonight, today we have uh, Luke Smith with us. Luke's an Edmonton Oilers fan. Um, Oilers lost last night, so they're down two nothing in the conference finals. Um, 
you know, maybe the Oilers can pull through and, and win the cup for the first first time a Canadian team have done so since the early 90s. So while our GDP per capita is sputtering, um, you know, hopefully Connor McDavid and the Oilers can can bring home the cup before Luke and, and the rest of us. Luke, just give us a sense, quick sense. What's the mood like there in Edmonton? Is it at a fever pitch? Are you guys still optimistic? Do you sense it's all slipping away? <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, uh, perhaps this dour, this dour economic times has been tempered a little bit here in Edmonton just because of the little bit of jubilation. But uh, honestly, after so many years of disappointment, just just making it this far, I know this this might be a little uh, not as triumphalist as, as you'd like, Rudyard, but just making it this far has been such a such a boon that I don't know, not, not that we're settling, but um, yeah. we're, we're, we're quite, quite happy for at least a little bit of success. Hey, well, like the loss last night. <laughs> let's uh, keep our fingers crossed. We can always bounce back. Um, that's what I'm hoping for too. Uh, as a serially victimized Leaf fan, I at least want to see one Canadian team kind of win the Stanley Cup. All these American expansion franchises getting their grubby hands on on Mr. Stanley just. Uh, insults my sense of national pride okay guys that's a wrap uh sean spear editor-at-large thanks for coming on the program luke smith thanks for making a guest appearance for our erstwhile editor-in-chief Stuart thompson who will be back next week and we'll do this all again for you on friday thanks again for listening have a terrific weekend thank you for listening to this special friday edition of the hub dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only hub dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.